The Tablet Show, Episode 93, with guest Jeff Morgan. Recorded live Thursday, July 11th, 2013. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Jeff Morgan about testing mobile applications. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here again. What's up, Mr. Campbell? I, uh, you know, enjoying a whole week at home after just a crazy run of conferences, just one place after the other. So I'm not complaining. I, I didn't plan on going to build, but I ended up going to build and we were together at tech ed and yep. it's just been nonstop. Then I, uh, got lucky enough to be invited down to a July 4th party, which for a Canadian is something to see. <laughs> What's wrong with you people? I think you Americans, you're a little nutty on <laughs> July 4th. You go all out. Uh, especially the Huckabees. Oh, yes. So, yeah, we were at uh, outside at Lake Elsinore at a place called Canyon Lake. Uh, 100-degree heat. I cooked four tri-tips and four chickens worth of barbecue chicken parts for a party of about 50 people. And, uh, and a good time was had by all. Pretty awesome. We've just been trying to uh, deal with the heat here on the East Coast. But enough about that. Let's get started with Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I had something kind of cool, and then my friend Richard Campbell said, have you seen the Nokia Lumia 1020? <laughs> Just before we started recording, and I said, well, no, I haven't. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash Nokia 1020, this um, I guess it's not available yet as of this recording, but all the product information is there. If you click on more product information, of course, uh, you get some detailed specs. Here's the big deal. The main camera sensor is 41 megapixels. 41. Yeah, it's crazy. And uh, uh, it does this oversampling trick. They've really totally rethought the way that cameras work. So it actually takes two pictures simultaneously, one at the full resolution at the 41 megapixels, which comes yeah. out to about 38 megs, and one at 5 megs. Mm. And so, even if you zoom the photo in when you take the picture, it'll still take the full frame picture as well as the zoomed in picture at the same time. That's wild. And it has this back you can snap onto it that has the camera mount on it. So, you can really, it really is a camera. Yeah. And uh, it's got the same kind of screen. It's a four and a half inch screen, but it's supposedly a lot lighter. Yeah. Yeah. Almost exactly the same form factor as the 920 but about a 30% lighter. That's pretty freaking awesome. That's neat. And uh, it's supposed to be coming out middle of July. So probably by the time you hear this show, it's going to be released on AT&T, hopefully up here in Canada as well. I think I want one. I do too. <laughs> like I said, I've had lots of iPhones and stuff. I haven't gone over to Android, but um, the Lumia 920 is by far the best phone I've ever had. Including a phenomenal camera. It just happens to be the best camera. I've never had as well. <laughs> I don't have a uh, an SLR camera, so but uh, it does every bit as good as uh, you know a handheld Canon, a little you know point and shoot. So there you go. Awesome. 
tinyurl.com slash nokia1020. Richard, what do you got for us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 89, and that's the one we did with uh, Laurent Vignon talking about building tablet applications when we were at NDC. Right. And I always have a great conversation with Lauren. He's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, this comment comes from Carl Kim Suwon Mungkol. And I hope I got that right, Carl Kim, because that's a heck of a name. Uh, and he says, there are a lot of good discussions here with Lauren. And I still remember his Deep Vive MVVM session at Mix 11, yeah. which I really enjoyed and rewatched several times. It's on Channel 9. You can always go back and watch it again. Uh, I want to express my opinion about ARM versus Intel devices. I don't think that it has to be about ARM versus Intel or Windows RT versus full-blown Windows 8, although there seems to be a lot of confusing and overlapping information right now. For general computing devices or PCs, backward compatibility with desktop applications and such and performance are very important while having good battery life also helps. And in that case, you still can't beat the Intel platform. Right. ARM devices come into the picture when you need a specialized device that you need to do one thing very well, such as an ebook, kiosk, digital signage, mobile point of sale, uh, those sorts of things. These could be Windows RT and ARM devices. Uh, the best thing that you can do is to use your WinRT skills to create apps for both ARM and Intel devices, but we should not expect that every WinRT app to be optimized and run well for both full-blown PCs with larger screens and very small, very cheap ARM devices with long-lasting battery life. Could be wrong, but as Windows 8 embedded in Xbox One will also have WinRT-based OS in it, I think Microsoft is going in that direction. Hmm. This harkens back to a thing that I said to Laurent, which is, I don't know how, how much longer ARM is going to survive because Intel's moved down so well yeah. that their power consumption has dropped dramatically. And you, you continue to have the rich feature set or the, the normal chipsets that you kind of have access to everything. So, you know, they, there's, a quite, there's a question of the cost that what Microsoft is putting into building ARM support and saying, is this actually worthwhile when the whole reason we went with ARM was for these low-cost things? So if Intel keeps pushing down on the lower cost, I think, you know, there's probably not room for ARM. But uh, I think the, the debate's still out. Uh, Carl Kim's more of uh, an optimist on me about this than I am. So I'll, I'll live with that. We can argue it further. So, Carl Kim, thanks so much for your comment. A tablet show mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting what's going on with ARM. And you never know what is going on with them. Yeah, show me something awesome in ARM. Right. They may surprise us all. You never know. This stuff happens so fast. Well, anyway, let us get to our guest today, Jeff Morgan, Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder of Lean Dog, Jeff Cheesy Morgan has been, his words, not mine, has been coaching teams on agile and lean technologies since 04 with a focus on engineering practices. For the past three years, he has experienced great success and recognition for his work focused on helping teams adopt acceptance test-driven development using Cucumber. He has authored several popular Ruby gems used by software testers throughout the world, teaches Cucumber classes and workshops, and is the author of the book Cucumber and Cheese, a tester's workshop. All right. Why cheesy? Well, the whole world wants to know that, but uh, I usually don't give it up so easy. I guess I will just for you, Carl. Well, should we wait till the end of the show so we give somebody an incentive to listen to the whole show? <laughs> okay, we could do that. Yeah, okay. I like that idea. I love messing with the listeners. Yeah. So, cucumber and cheese, a taster's, I'm sorry, a tester's workshop. I couldn't help that. <laughs> Taste testers workshop. Is this how it's going to go today? Really? That's where's the crackers. That's you know. <laughs> well, anyway, tell us about your, your work uh, with acceptance test driven development. Well, let me tell you how I came to become interested in this practice first. 
So uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, I've been coaching Agile teams for quite a number of years. And uh, when I first started off, I kept running into a very common theme as I would go from one team to another team. And that was that the testing practices really sucked. Yeah. And when I would go work with the teams, the managers were always fine with me messing with the developers or having the developers test drive their code, pair program, stand on their head. They didn't really care what I had the developers do. But when I would try to push the envelope in the testing community a little bit, they'd often push me back and say, hands off, you know, these are our business people or they really are not technical folks. You can't teach them how to write code or, you know, just, just be careful how you tread. And it really frustrated me because team after team, this was my constraint. And so I wasn't able to make as much progress as I wanted to. Uh, eventually, I, I went to work for a group where they didn't give me such warnings. And so I decided to turn a knob up to 11 or 12 or so. And we really started integrating the, the testing very tightly with the uh, development stream and started doing a lot of crazy ideas at the time. And had some amazing successes. So from that point forward, I started to continue to push further and further and started trying to pull the business more into that effort. And then it sort of led to acceptance test-driven development. And so uh, I've been been uh, using this ever since. So many of our listeners know what test-driven development is. What's the difference between test-driven and acceptance test-driven? Excellent question. So test-driven development is a technique we use to basically make sure our code is well-formed, to keep it clean and lean. Acceptance test-driven development is something that I define it as starting with the product owner or the person who knows and understands what it is they want us to build. And we ask them to capture those requirements or that knowledge in a specific format. Since I use uh, Cucumber, we capture it in something called Gherkin. And uh, so... The whole team has a part in that. The product owner comes out and says, here's what I would like it to do. They, they state that. Uh, the developers, testers have a chance to look at it, continue to modify it, elaborate, whatever it might be, up until the point where we actually start to write the code. And when we begin to write the code, what typically happens on a team where you have a separate tester or and developer role is the tester right away goes out and automates those acceptance tests. These tests usually go end-to-end. They're functional tests. So they might, in the case of a tablet application, open up an emulator or possibly go right out to a device and drive the application from the front end while the developer starts using that to help them make sure the functional behavior is correct. And they would test drive the application out in that way. So Mm -hmm. the acceptance piece of it sort of comes from the fact that what we try to do is work with the product owner to get them to agree that when these tests all pass, these tests that we've defined ahead of time, that from a functional perspective or behavioral perspective, that this story is done. So it's really just asking the the people who have the stake in the, the product to give you the A-OK, they have approved this app. It really is. It, and it goes a little bit further than that as well, because you'll notice what we're doing, instead of waiting until the app is developed to begin testing it, we're actually starting to test it before it's developed. So if we're playing a story to add something new to this, this tablet app, the first thing we'll do is we'll have an automated test. Now, clearly those tests will fail because the, the functionality is not there yet. Sure. But then that also helps guide us as developers so that we make sure that we write the right code. And so we get a good feeling that we're getting right whenever the stories all pass. Yeah. It's, it's really important to keep the big picture, isn't it? You know, when you lose sight, of, lose sight of that, you're wasting time. 
I just like the idea that we're getting everybody involved in testing, that it's not just the testers doing the testing, but that the stakeholders are part of constructing those tests in the first place. You know, I think the biggest battle I've had over the years with software is actually knowing when we're done. So the idea that you get the guy who really would know when we're done to help define those tests that define when we're done, that makes me really happy. Yeah. Yes, and and, and the, the whole notion of getting everybody involved is, is another important aspect of this because too often we've relied on the business exclusively to build out the, the requirements for us. But what we've learned and what I've observed is that they actually don't have all the knowledge that they need to get that right. And so having the testers get involved at that earlier stage and, and starting to help them think about some of the edge cases that we might run into or some of the difficulties we might run along the way, getting the developers involved so that they can help us know and understand what's really even possible and collaboratively making sure that we narrow down on what is the right thing to build is, is very powerful. And in my opinion, the most powerful aspect of this technique, clearly the automation comes out of it as well. Well, you mentioned that the stakeholders will you know, run the test either in an emulator or on a device. And that sort of gets to the crux of the matter, which is, is it any more difficult or, you know, different at least, uh, uh, except it's testing on mobile application than it is, uh, say, a Windows application? Uh, well, there are a few additional challenges when you're dealing with, with uh, the mobile platform. Um, you guys know as well as any that there is no such thing as a single tablet. If you're on the Android platform, there are many different tablets out there, each of which have different resolutions and such. Uh, if you're targeting a, a, a handheld or a phone, again, that the, the breadth is even greater. And so depending mm. on the type of application you're building, you may need to know or understand uh, which sort of devices to actually test, physically test on. Mm -hmm. There are other interesting aspects to testing on this device that you wouldn't get necessarily on a desktop or not to the same amount. For example... Uh, a lot of applications don't behave well if you, in the middle of, of an activity, switch from uh, Wi-Fi to 3G, for example. Right. Or, you know, most people that test their applications on a mobile platform, they test it with a with an emulator or a device that has virtually no applications loaded. So yeah. knowing how to simulate real-world situations where, for example, at the beginning of running your tests, first thing you do is you load 30 apps into memory and so that you get that real-world experience. Or you practice switching back and forth from 3G to uh, Wi-Fi, or maybe you take it down to a single bar and, and in the middle of a running test, you shut 3G off and give them no service and so and yeah. see how the application recovers. So those are some interesting things that are that are kind of unique to the device itself. Well, and emulators never never really work the way you want them to anyway. I'm I've had lots and lots of problems especially with web emulators just because of the the you know what they're running, the the web engine that they're running is usually different. Yes. You know, they you just can't do it all. So so they, I guess what I'm saying is yeah, you start with an emulator, but then at some point, you know, the stakeholders have to pull out their iPads and, you know, Windows machines and whatever and actually test these things. Yes, they sure do. So what the way we develop in our studio mobile apps is the developers, as they're writing the code, they're running pretty much exclusively on emulators or simulators, depending on which, which device they're targeting. But our CI server that runs with every check-in usually has two or three physical devices connected to it. So it will spawn out the test and run them against each of those devices. Mm. And so we try to 
understand, you know, the target order, it, you know, and, and get a couple of different devices that, that seem to be the most appropriate for that app. So maybe we should run down the, you talk about this book is cucumber and cheese. Are those two yes. different tools? Well, I'm cheese. You're cheese. Okay. So <laughs> I am. So, yeah. So, uh, the, the, the mobile aspect is only one aspect of this. So, uh, as I mentioned in, in the earlier portion of the show, uh, I've worked a lot to introduce acceptance test driven development, not just only in the mobile space. Uh, initially, some of the early work I did was, was in the web space. So I've done a lot of work in the data warehousing. I believe it or not, I've also, uh, taken this technique to some embedded into some hardware, uh, projects. So, uh, so Cucumber and a whole suite of gems that myself and some other folks I work with have built up over time are the way that we like to incorporate this workflow. And as we started personally doing mobile apps and as I started working with mobile teams in the field, we started realizing that uh, that the mobile testing space was was really weak in mm-hmm. many ways. And we can get into that later. But uh, so we, we kind of tried to tackle it a little bit and build some gems. The book is kind of more of a, a different vein. Uh, so I work with a lot of traditional testing groups that are trying to make the change to a more agile approach and are trying to learn automation and they're trying to learn where do I fit and how do I become productive because you know the whole approach of manually executing scripts is is evaporating there it's going away pretty rapidly so uh so that book my book is sort of an attempt to say here's a great way to get started i've got some real world examples that i take people through both testing an android app in in the book testing a website and and other things as well so that's what the book is about this portion of the tablet show is brought to you by our good friends at telerik Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the tablet show. All right. So I do want to dig into this. Cucumber is a tool I've used as well. And I think folks need to, to know more about it just because it doesn't seem to be in the purview of most Microsoft oriented developers. Yes. So tell us more about Cucumber. So, okay, well, uh, Cucumber is a tool. Uh, it is actually fairly somewhat language agnostic right now, where you try to capture a set of examples of how a system should work when it's finished in a, uh, in a language called Gherkin. And Gherkin is an, is an English-like language. It has a little bit of structure to it because uh, it ultimately does have to parse the document. But you, so you capture the, the requirements in this specific format and what Cucumber or some related tools, which I'll mention in just a moment, do is it then 
executes that Gherkin file, bridges over to the coding world in which you would write your code to actually do the automation. So the Cucumber project itself originally started as, as a Ruby project. Over time, it's expanded to handle most of the the, uh, the Java stack. So, for example, there you could use Java, you could use Groovy, other languages as well. Uh, there, there is a tool called Specflow, which is more familiar probably mm-hmm. to a lot of folks from the Microsoft uh, area. And it uses the exact same Gherkin parser that uh, Cucumber uses. It does essentially the same thing. The difference there is that your step definitions or the code bridge that you provide is written in C-sharp as opposed to Ruby or Java or some other language. Right. What I find fascinating about this stuff is that, you know, it starts as, um, you, you know, sort of plain text, which is very just sort of agile stories that in, in essentially – I guess what you're saying is that this uh, gherkin is what I really want to see. The, is the gherkin the the plain text that it we're is. talking about? Yeah. So that is that something that you would feel comfortable giving to a stakeholder, giving to a non-programmer? Because it seems a little bit programmerish, you know. The way uh, don't use a lot of the examples that you might see on the internet right now because yeah. there are a lot of really bad examples out there, just like there are bad examples for everything. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's shaping my perception. But but to answer your question, absolutely. When I'm working with teams, I have the uh, product owner or the business person write this. Now, clearly, the version that they write is the starting place, and as they start to continue to interact with the team. As we get closer to actually playing the story, then the team has a chance to tweak it, modify it, and such. So Gherkin is kind of a scary term. So what what I might do is just talk a little bit about what it is. It is literally a text document written in English. It has a few keywords that actually trigger the parser. So, for example, uh, a Gherkin file would have several uh, sections that were labeled scenario. And a scenario, again, is just a simple example of how you would expect the system to work if it was working properly. And then underneath of that scenario, you would see statements that begin with given, when, or then. And those really kind of map directly back to Ron Jeffrey's idea of arrange, assert, or sorry, arrange, act, assert for TDD. If you think about it, the given is let's put things in some known state so we're ready to begin. The when is the action that we perform, and, and the then is the, the assertion. So, for example, let's say if I have a screen for registration and the uh, email address is required, that we're going to require them to enter an email address in order to register, mm. we might have a scenario that says something like, when I attempt to register and leave the email address empty, then I would see the, the message email is a required field. So it literally might be just something as simple as that. That's cool. Yeah, and I, I think this is what was um, coloring my opinion because I, I saw a lot of examples and I was like, well, man, how is a business person supposed to learn all this stuff? And if they are going to this you know, length in, in terms of being descriptive and expressive with a language, you know, what's the, the next step is programming. It's not that far a jump. Yeah, so a lot of the uh, uh, lineage that's out there is actually being driven from the traditional testing uh, world. For example, you see a lot of examples on the Internet where they talk about every single mouse click 
entering text into every field, everything, you know, interactive. And and if you think about it, historically in the testing world, that's the way folks have written test scripts. Mm. And the reason that they've done that is that's the only way that they can create something that they have a prayer of being repeatable. You know, you enter these very exact things, follow this very exact recipe, and here's the results you should see. Now, once we get to an automation world, though, there really is absolutely no need to do that any longer. The, the machine itself gives us the repeatability. So what we want to do instead is get rid of all that noise and instead talk more about the business function. What is the key requirement? You know, yeah. back to the registration, the key requirement is that we must capture an email address. So let's just say that, you know, when we register without an email address, then we see this error message. Right. So yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, no, I get it. And it, it. And it really does make sense to me to have a language that, you know, business people and stakeholders can express their, their ideas in and be clear. And because that's the only reason why we have a, a language like Gherkin is because the English language just sort of fails us. And we have to make these assumptions and have this culture around it in order for everybody to understand what people mean. Yeah. yeah. So, well, and, and we also need to take it one step beyond understanding and make it something that could be converted to a test. Right. And that, that, is, that is very true. And so the, the difference between just a regular requirement and a test is if, if we were building a calculator, for example, the requirement might be that we add two numbers and we get the sum, but that's not a test. The mm -hmm. test has to say when I enter three and I enter four and hit the add, you know, and try to add those, I get seven. So in right. other words, it has to be precise. And that's why they've gone more to this structure that kind of drives us toward a test. You got your setup. You've got your action, and then you've got your area where you can confirm that it worked properly. I also noticed looking at the SpecFlow site that Gherkin, because it's is not English only, they support 40 different languages, even non-Latin uh, character sets like uh, Cyrillic. I saw Bulgarian. Now that is cool. And Arabic. Very yes. cool. Like when you talk about, you know, what I like about it, I, you know, I get that it's structured. The structure almost reminds me of like creating a Wikipedia entry. Mm. It's not that elaborate, but the fact that a non-software person could read it really excites me. The, the sense of even if you as the technical person has to write the description when you're talking to them, when they can read it back and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me because the code doesn't make sense to them, but Gherkin does It's because it's, it may be odd syntax, but it is normal human language syntax yes you know i'm i'm really fascinated with this idea of how uh acceptance testing and even testing in general is different in the mobile platform than it is let's say on a desktop and uh some of the some of the tests that you uh in the cases that you have to test for are going to be a bit different like you were mentioning the um you know the network state when the network goes down what a great thing to test for but difficult to test for it is very difficult, and it's something a lot of folks don't think about. So uh, the nice thing about this, and I'm going to give a plug to uh, a company, there there are companies online now that actually offer those sort of services for you. They will host a wide range of devices, and they have APIs that allow you to do these things that I mentioned. In fact, the one that I've worked with uh, precise, uh, explicitly was, was at Purify out of the Bay Area, and yeah. uh, so – so that sort of testing that used to be outside of the reach of most people is you could set it home now and do it. That's very cool, Jeff. And and the fact that they host a lot of the devices, it gives you access to if you're a whole host of devices that maybe you don't have the ability to go out and buy yourself. 
Yeah, this, these are the guys that have like every kind of phone and every kind of tablet, and then they run your your stuff through it and actually give you like photos of the screenshots and things like that. It, it's sort of that same idea, yes. So uh, uh, there's Sauce Labs is the one that has all of the combinations and that actually give you the video of it again. Yeah, very cool. Yes. So how automated can all of this testing get? Can I get to the point where we're we're building this as just part of our continuous integration process that it just literally everything I construct here runs automatically the moment we we drop a build? That's how we do it. Yes. Yeah, so for us, uh, the developers are using it on their individual workstations as they're they're driving the code as they're crafting it. Uh, then as they're checking in, uh, the the acceptance tests are kind of different in that uh, multiple check-ins might take place before the entire feature or the entire uh, script itself runs. So we have to control how, which uh, cucumber scenarios run and which ones don't. So in, in my book, I talk a lot about that. Uh, I can go into that now as well if that's something you think would be interesting. But uh, eventually, as as those scenarios begin to work, they get added to our test suite that just continues to run on the CI server. Or if you have a continuous build, uh, system, it could be added to one of the gates along the way as well. So absolutely it can be. Now, how far do you go, though, is, is a really good question. Uh, often with mobile apps, there's a lot of visual aspects to it. And we've learned that that trying to automate visual things is just a really, really bad idea. So what we tend to do uh, with that is, again, not wait until we've developed it to verify or validate the visual aspects, but instead introduce that tester so that as little pieces or parts of the app are finished, we have the tester begin exploratory testing right away. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with exploratory testing, but it is a technique that usually is considered something that we do after the software is done, we begin to do this. And what we found is that that's often too late because it opens up the, the likelihood of waste, i.e. a yeah. defect. You know, if we wait till after we're done and we find a problem, what happens? Well, we have to go back and rework something we thought we were finished with, right? So introducing, again, the tester right into the mix so that literally the developer and tester have these incredibly tight feedback loops that are measured in a few minutes as opposed to, you know, days has helped us out a lot as far as streamlining our development process and keeping quality high. Yeah, I, I think it's a real challenge to construct those sorts of tests as quickly as developers are adding new features. I don't want testing to be the bottleneck. That's right. So what we have found is the, the automation goes much faster than, than the developers are able to deliver it. Uh, and some of that, I guess, comes down to the tools that you use. I, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but I can say that the way that we do it and the tool sets that we use, the developer or the testers are typically done in, in maybe a quarter of the time that it takes the developers to finish it. And that's how we have you know, single tester be able to support multiple developers and still continue to do the exploratory testing as we go along. And I love that because I, there was a time when we were talking about a couple of testers per developer. Yeah. And I just, it seems so impractical. You know, I remember uh, it was Billy Hollis Billy who had Hollis. a great line somewhere along the, uh, the way where he said, if you've got two testers per developer, how much do your developers suck? Yeah. yeah and and all, the, all the amount of code that gets written for every line of code. Yeah, and written by hand, I think is the real the real issue there. 
So I'm interested in your tool set. I mean, you, you say with the tools that we use, we're able to uh, be so much more efficient. I got to imagine it's not just the tools, but the use of those tools. What's, uh, do, you, do you have custom tools that you use as well? Uh, well, so Cucumber is a driver, right? But Cucumber doesn't know anything about a, a, an emulator or a device or a browser or a Windows app. So in the Ruby space, which is where we write our tests, uh, Ru- Cucumber would use other gems, Ruby gems, to communicate with those items. So just to clarify for your audience, a Ruby gem is nothing more than just a third-party library in the Ruby space. Right. So. What's happened over the years is that we've actually developed a suite of Ruby gems that leverage the language Ruby to kind of maximize the usefulness of our code. For example, uh, there are a lot of languages where you end up writing a lot of code to do a small amount. In Ruby, because of the metaprogramming capability in the language, these gems that we've built up allows the tester to write a smaller amount of code. And under the hood, unbeknownst to them, they have no idea, or maybe they do, uh, it's actually doing a lot of the heavy lifting or writing a lot of the code for them. And so we started off doing this in the web space. And over time, we've built out not only the the uh, gems that actually allow you to drive a browser or drive a, an Android device or an iOS device, but that also handle a lot of the other things that are very common to uh, larger test suites, like, for example, test data management or being able to provide same default values for your system so that you don't have to specify all the data necessary and and uh gems that handle the configuration of your prod of your test suite as you move it from one environment to another and and uh, even gems that allow you to with a single command navigate through a whole series of screens and and populate the data on each of those screens until you get to the place that you really want to get to and so as a result what we've done is we've really minimized the amount of code that you have to write and, if, and so as we built this out on the web framework and we started moving into other platforms like testing web services, testing uh, mobile devices, what we've been able to do is we've been able to keep the interface to the actual physical end device very lean and very small and have all these other supplemental gems that are used consistently, whether you're testing a, a uh, Windows desktop app or a uh, web app or an Android tablet uh, app. Most of the code is identical, and it's only the piece that actually touches the physical device at the endpoint that changes. And the other thing that we've done is we've even made it so that the API, even though the code itself is different, the API of how you interact with that thing is the same as well. So it was, again, the goal of providing a set of tools that make it really easy to do this thing that we're talking about, writing code to test something before that thing exists, and and leveraging the things that we build on one platform to make it simpler to go to another device or another platform to do it. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, the book showcases some of these. Uh, if you want to see a lot of them, you can go to rubygems.org and look up my, uh, my ID there. I've got, I think 15 gems out in the wild right now. Wow. Great. And they, there's something about, I mean, I think NuGet modeled itself after Ruby gems, really. Yes. You know, it'd be interesting to see, you guys have gotten way out ahead of us here, but you're clearly showing a path forward. I'd like you get to get to this point where this is just the way we would do all of these things. But it's interesting to see where the intersections are. Like spec flow is clearly cucumber written for C sharp, right? Like it's, that's awesome. I'm still battling back and forth. I'm working with some teams where all our testing, we are using Ruby. 
We may be yeah. developing in C sharp or other languages even, but you know, Ruby seems to lend itself to being an awesome way to do testing. Yeah, I, I see that a lot. In fact, uh, the vast majority of the teams I work for, the application is not in Ruby. The application may be written in C sharp. It may be written in, you know, PHP, Python, Java, it, you know, uh, obviously Objective C, whatever it might be. But Ruby, the reason that it, it, it has a sweet spot in this testing area is probably twofold. Number one, that the language itself is quite simple to use. It's easy for somebody who's fairly new to this or just learning how to do this to, to ramp up quickly with it. But secondly, it's these gems. Uh, I spend a lot of time coding in a lot of these platforms. I've written a lot of .NET code. I've written a lot of Java code over the years. But once you start to go to these other platforms and build these larger test suites, there are things that know how to open up a browser and send commands to a browser, but that's only a tiny fraction of what you need to build large test suites. And, and once you start to look at what are the other things that I need, uh, they haven't really developed or they're at least immature on these other platforms. And Ruby, they, these things have been around now for several years, so they're pretty sharp, pretty solid. And, and, and so I think uh, one of the reasons why Ruby is becoming more and more popular in the testing space is because these gems are there. Uh, recently, I just did some work on the Groovy platform, and, and there we had to actually write our own. And so I was re-implementing some other things that already existed and have existed for several years in the Ruby space. What's been your biggest challenge with testing and mobile development? So, well, uh, the biggest challenge is, is that I really didn't want to have to write all of this. But yeah. when we started, when I started working with mobile teams, the the tools, both the unit testing and functional testing tools that were there were just absolutely atrocious. So my first fairly large project was one on the Android platform. And mm. so uh, I started working with the developers. And, and obviously, the first thing I do is, is I look at, you know, Google's test framework for unit testing. And uh, so I don't know how much technical detail you want to go into, but I could tell you that the frustration for me was that in order to even use anything, my code had to be deployed into a Delvic environment, which meant that my TDD workflow was like this. You write your test and then you run it, wait 15 seconds for it to load the app into the Delvic environment and it fails. You know, then you write the code to get it to pass, run it, wait another 15, 20 seconds or so for it to load and finally you get your green bar and then each refactoring it was the same thing. And so in a TDD workflow, I want that test to run in about a second or two. And the fact that just a red green refactor was taking me, you know, two or three minutes was just, uh, I, I couldn't handle that. And then, and mm -hmm. so the fact that there weren't great tools really frustrated me. So we started working with some other folks and we came up with some tools on the functional area. It was the same thing. There were gyms, that allowed you to do some of this sort of from Cucumber, but they had severe limitations in that they only offered access to some of the key functionality on the device or, or in the emulator. Uh, furthermore, they were very slow and uh, the, the APIs just weren't really designed well. Or to do one function, you had to make multiple calls instead of which each one would go across the wire as opposed to being able to package up. Here's four things I want to do, send it to the device and have them just rattle off sequentially. So Man. it was this frustration with the tools that kind of led me to, to sort of build my own, like any good developer would do. <laughs> so that's been my frustration on the mobile space. Uh, I've had some recent frustration in the iOS space only because uh, some of the tools that were there have, gone commercial and they've made it a little bit more difficult to use 
or they've released broken version as free and have asked you to actually pay for more uh, uh, working versions. That has seemed to go against the spirit of open source tools that I'm used to working with. So that's been a little frustration, but I think those problems are behind us now. So uh, what's next for you? You're writing more books? I Well, the book that I have is still as a, a beta book. Uh, it's 12 chapters, and I have 10 and a half chapters finished. So I'm trying over the next few weeks to finish it up. It's out on LeanPub, so you can grab it right now. Are we going to see a Pluralsight course? Uh, well, I am working on something new right now that I'm calling Test Automation Bootcamp. Okay. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the developer boot camps that are running in San Francisco and, and Chicago oh, right sure. now. But so one of the things that I've had a lot of over the last oh, year or so is some of the customers that I've worked with reaching out to me and saying, hey, Cheesy, we uh, we absolutely love this, but we're having trouble finding people who can actually do this. On, you know, so we're having to do, train everyone ourselves. And so I worked with a lot of folks in the industry and put together an eight-week curriculum that's pretty, pretty amazing. And so right now we're just testing the waters to see if there's enough interest in this. And hopefully within a couple of weeks or so, we'll know one way or the other. And if there is, this is something I'm going to be driving forward with. Well, that sounds great. Now, I think we need to talk about the whole cheese thing. Yeah, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you cheesy? Well, uh, if you would write code with me, it would become obvious real easily. But uh, uh, I'll tell you, I usually don't give it up this easy, but I, but just for you, I will do it. Uh, Cheesy is a nickname that some of my friends gave me about 15 years ago. Uh, it, it, there, there's, there's another story behind that that would embarrass another friend of mine, so I'm not going to go there. But let me just say that <laughs> 15 years ago, uh, some of my buddies gave me a nickname, Cheesy, and every time I tried to you know, li live it down, or they would always remember it. Um, You're not a huge Barry Manilow fan, are you? <laughs> no, All no, right. I'm not. So fast forward to when I started coaching, and uh, sometimes I would go and work with a team, and uh, not everybody on the team was always happy to see me there because often that meant I was bringing change. We're going to, you know, and change is frightening to a lot of folks, and so I needed a way to kind of break the ice, and so. I found it be very effective to stand in front of a team and say, hi, everybody, I'm cheesy. And after they kind of look at each other and, and a few eyebrows raise, uh, it seems to break the ice a little bit. So my Twitter handle was cheesy and my blog was cheesy. And so now when I go to a conference and speak, uh, if they happen to print Jeff Morgan on my name tag, I have people that walk up to me, look at my name tag, look at me and just kind of are puzzled for a little while. And finally, they come up and say, are you cheesy? I'm like, yeah, I'm cheesy. All right. But that still doesn't answer the question. Why <laughs> did you get the nickname in the first place, Jeff? Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you why I kept it. How's that go? Well, no, I want to know why they gave it to you. Ooh, that, that, uh, okay. Meet me sometime and buy me a few beers and I'll be happy to share okay. that. Okay. <laughs> but it, it <laughs> the, the way I've kept it, though, is that if you ever write code with me and we pair, you're going to see that I'm a fun guy. I'm always cracking jokes, and I have thousands of corny jokes. So uh, okay, uh, so so we'll chalk it up to it. cheesy humor. Exactly. Okay, that's fine with me. Oh, I'm sorry, listeners. That wasn't the, you know the the nugget you were waiting for, but uh, you know, have a beer with Jeff, and maybe he'll give it up. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff, very much for helping us out here. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much, but it needs a lot. Just try it.
want 